for this edition of Cloud Out Loud, we actually happen to be sitting here in the lovely GitHub offices, and we have roped Tom Preston Warner into discussing all that's new with GitHub for us. So thanks for showing up. I hope that the glass of whiskey sitting in front of you didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, well, I'm not going to lie. It didn't have nothing to do with it. Uh, I'm not going to say how much it had to do with it. But I do appreciate you bringing the whiskey by. That's it. It's always a pleasant situation when that happens. Bribery always works. So tell us what's new with GitHub. Uh, explain to us what's going on. What do you guys have on deck? What are the things that are excited uh, are exciting for you about GitHub right now? Uh, we have a bunch of stuff in the works. I am working on redoing all of the search functionality throughout the whole site. So I've been spending a lot of time learning solar and the intricacies thereof so that I can go in there, figure out how the indexes need to look, what kinds of things we need to be indexing, get the indexing strategy more streamlined so that we're not missing big chunks of the index, uh, and really just rethinking the whole strategy of search. Let's say, so what targeted, like what was the specific thing that made you decide that you needed to rework search from scratch? Uh, it's just, it's been not so great for a long time. And, and I think the catalyst really was over, over Christmas vacation, I was home in Iowa and I was reading through some of the tweets and someone was like, boy, GitHub search sure is bad. And I was like, you know what? GitHub search is bad. And when that happens, then someone on the team, it takes it upon themselves to do what's necessary to remedy that situation. And in this case, we've been talking about it for a long time. And we said, well, search is one of those things that we want to, to get better in 2011. And I said, well, I'm not doing anything right now at home, so I'm gonna pick up the solar, uh, the, the solar book that came out not too long ago. And it's recent for the most recent version. And I just, I sat down and I read it because I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. I mean, search, I used to work at PowerSet, search company. So, I mean, I'm familiar with search stuff. So maybe it should be me that does it. Right, in that I know what some of the terms of search mean and how that stuff works and whatnot. So I sat down and I read the book and I and, and I started working on it and so far so good. That's it. So why did you guys pick solar? I mean, considering okay, about to start the flame war. This is almost like Emacs versus <laughs> Vim and everything else or TextMate. But okay, so why did you pick solar as an inverted index and a search solution as opposed to any of the other various equally valid <laughs> search options that are out there? Uh, it, it wasn't actually me that chose it. I think Scott initially chose it. We were, I think the main choice was between Solar and Sphinx at mm -hmm. the time. Those are the two, to, to us, the most prominent uh, choices for open source search solutions. And we, this was two years ago, I guess, that we initially put search out there very early in the company's history. And we don't have a lot of money to throw behind like fast search or Google search boxes, which are like insanely expensive, et cetera. So we wanted to use an open source one and we figured we could make that work. And at the time, Sphinx did not do incremental index updates. You had to roll a new index every single time, which for very large document sets like we had, was just not practical. Now I'm pretty sure Sphinx has incremental index updating now, but at the time it, it doesn't. If I am If I am informed correctly on what the the decision behind that was. But I think that's why we made that decision. And solar was, a lot of people used it. Lots of businesses, lots of enterprises use it. It's like, well, if it works for these huge companies that have billions of documents, we should be able to make it work for our data set, which is significantly smaller than that. Hmm. Although not for long. <laughs> nice. Well, actually, that brings up one other question. So are you actually using the raw Java interfaces for solar, or are you using something else like JRuby or some other scripting interface? We use, we run solar just the regular way through Jetty, and then 
uh, we use the Solar Ruby bindings for Ruby, and then that just you assemble the search query, you send it over the wire using Solar Ruby's interface, and then mm -hmm. it comes back as just a set of hashes. We take those hashes and we format them in the proper way for output. Got it. So, do you have any problems with things like memory inset, like essentially the representation of that data set in memory? Can you stream it from the Solar server or? Uh, it's not it's not streamed, but the document sizes that are coming back are usually small enough that it doesn't really matter okay. because you're searching for the code search, for instance, you're indexing individual files, and we have some cutoff, which I believe is 50, ke 50 kilobytes in size, mm -hmm. that right now code search just won't index at all. It just says, this document is over 50K, don't even bother. Now in the future, I'd like to just truncate it as something like 50K or maybe go up to 100K, but as long as you don't have a lot of those documents coming back in the search results, uh, then it's not really a problem. And in fact, we probably don't even need to send back the full bodies of the files themselves because really all you need is the snippet, this, this, what, what, what matched, what matched highlighting. And I just need to figure out how to turn off sending back that whole field on return because it returns that field by default because, it. it's, because it'll return any field that you wanted to highlight by default. And so I just need to figure that out. So really it shouldn't be a problem because all you're getting back is some metadata about the thing that you're searching on and then the highlighted snippets that it found. So the weight of that chunk of data coming out of the wire is really very small. So if you, when you start looking at the, uh, the other problems with search, like specifically what problems in search with code in GitHub, like scale, specific types of indexing, uh, different types of files, parsing, lexing, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, have you run into any challenges that definitely sort of fall outside the regular range? Yeah, well, indexing code is, is a special kind of thing. It's not like indexing prose because you've got all these special symbols and you have to decide, well, are we going to index periods? Are we going to index curly braces? Are we going to index hash symbols, etc.? Normally, in English language, you're not going to do those things. You just throw them out. You don't tokenize them at all. And so we have to decide what is the appropriate way to tokenize those things to make the searching work the way that you expect it to work matching on more literal sets of, of things. Because if you're searching for, um, I don't know what a good example is, but if you want to search for something dot something, then traditional tokenizing is just going to take that period and throw it away. But it is semantically meaningful in the sense that you want that chunk of those two things together right. with a period between them. Could be the difference between a class and a class method. Right, exactly. And you want that to be irrelevant thing. You want it to notice when that happens, as opposed to if you throw out that information, then it's going to match them because they're close together, but it's not going to care that there was actually a period between them. But that is semantically useful information. So now it's, it's th those are choices that I haven't really made yet that I'm still going through, trying to figure out what the best tokenization strategy is for code. Mm -hmm. And there's other things like porter stemming, which is a common type of stemming so that you match. If, if you want to match, if you're searching English and you type in run, you would also like to potentially match running, ran, those types of things. Porter stemming is not going to ma match ran, but it would match running. And if you type in running, it'll match run. Basically reduces each, each word to the, the most basic component. So it would, it would take running and it would index the word run instead. And as long as you do that on the query and what you're indexing, then those two things will match. So another question is, do we do porter stemming on code? And that's not something that most people think about, but in some sense, that makes sense. Like if, you, if you're gonna match something that's in a comment, then that's English. 
right? If you're gonna match something that's in code, probably you don't wanna do stemming, but at the same time, maybe you, you don't, you typed it a little off, but that it would stem the same, and maybe you do wanna match that. I'm leaning towards not doing porter stemming. This is probably not something that, that uh, <laughs> is that interesting to most people, but it is interesting to me right now in, in going through those kinds of decisions of as how do you create and craft that index in the right way. Well, no, but that's that's kind of important, right? Because now, I, I guess if you think about it, if I'm searching for comments in C code versus C++ code, multi-line comments versus single-line comments versus right. Erlang shell scripts, because actually right now, do you have any idea what the stats are for like language distributions on GitHub? I know for a while you guys were keeping track of which languages were most accurately represented. Yeah, so JavaScript just recently became the most popular language, followed now by Ruby. Now part of this, part of that might come from counting JavaScript code more than it should be because people almost always include the JavaScript libraries in their code bases. So you'll see jQuery included in a lot of things and we do take measures to, to not count popular known JavaScript libraries mm -hmm. in the total code distribution of projects when we count it. And that's, but that's not perfect. So it's gonna be, JavaScript is generally gonna be skewed a little bit up um, but it's uh, I can I can look it up and tell you the exact mm -hmm. the exact breakdown. Uh, JavaScript eighteen percent, Ruby eighteen percent, Python nine percent, Perl nine percent, C seven percent, PHP seven percent, and then a handful of other ones. Oh. So that's the basic breakdown as far as we've automatically detected. Got it. What's fastest growing? JavaScript. I'd say JavaScript is probably fastest growing. I mean, Ruby has been number one since we started and JavaScript overtook Ruby. So I have to say that, that probably JavaScript is fastest, although Python is growing very rapidly as well. Yeah, interesting, is that because you guys have been doing a lot more outreach to the Python community? I think, was Chris just at PyCon or? Um, no, he, although he's been going to the, the Python conferences. Uh, and Scott talks at a lot of the Python conferences as well. We've been doing outreach to Python and JavaScript um, pretty heavily, we, we uh, go to those conferences and sponsor those conferences as much as we can. Hmm. I think it's just uh, the general trend of dynamic languages are coming to, to Git, right? They're discovering as people go along, I mean, a lot of those projects are on GitHub already and they see them and they're like, well, hey, this seems pretty cool. You know, jQuery is using GitHub. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Hmm. It's really great to get those big projects using GitHub. It drives a lot of, a lot of customers to us. So, you know, one of the things you guys actually sort of promote as the tenant of GitHub is social coding. So given that you're actually outside the Ruby community and, you know, I, I think Ruby was one of the first places where the idea of, of socially getting together to actually communally write code, sharing code, mm -hmm. drink ups, meetups, all that sort of stuff, um, sort of really took off as an actual uh, value of, of the community. What would you say are some of the differences or similarities between, say, the Python social coding community or the JavaScript social coding community compared to what you guys have seen in, in Ruby or Erlang or, or other? Uh, the Ruby community and the way that the Ruby community interacts is always kind of my model for how it should be done. It's, it's my favorite by far of all the, the conferences and all of the events I've been to. The Ruby community to me has always been so open and so interested in bringing the language forward and exploring new ideas and embracing new people mm -hmm. in a really nice way. And I can remember very distinctly when I was learning Erlang, it was not that way at all. I would go into the, into the IRC room sometimes and I, I just, I wanted to know how I could write 
um, how I could get the, the PID of a, a running process, no, 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 just to get the PID, so I could write it out. And I needed to do that because I wanted to monitor it with God, and I needed to know the PID file so that I could have it under God's control. And I went into the into the chat room and I said, "Hey, how do I do this?" And the the initial first response was, "Why, Why would, would you, you want, want to, to do that?" Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I could sit here and explain it to you, but I really shouldn't have to. I mean, it's it's just like people need to do things like that. I don't know. I mean, it seems like a a, a like a pretty reasonable thing to me. But that was always that was always kind of like, why would you want to do that? And I can sort of understand that in that. They want to maybe guide you and, and understand why you would want to do something specifically, which is the question. What are your motivations? Although it always, it always came off as very aggressive, and some of the people in there were just not nice people. No, no, actually, I remember learning C++ the exact same way. Like, you, you'd drop into a C++ room, and people would basically post your code, no matter, knowing that it's bad, but instead of sitting there and telling you why it was bad, mostly you'd get, like, peals of laughter, followed by, essentially, abuse heaped upon your shoulders. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's terrible. And Erlang, honestly, has gotten way better. I, I, I go to the conferences and stuff, and, and their community is, is really nice now. I think, it's, I think it is because they have so many new people coming in, and they understand what it's like to not know that language. And so they generally treat people well, whereas mm-hmm. things like Erlang and C and these, these things that, are, that require a little more understanding of... of complex ideas more so than things like PHP which are which were kind of built to be understandable and don't do a lot of the really intense craziness like concurrency and, and hardcore memory management that Erlang and C do respectively if you don't have new people constantly coming in all the time in droves then you can get you can fall into that easy place of, of being Haskell. yeah exactly and it's, it's, it's just I think that's a natural tendency for those groups to to become insulated from new people just because they like the way they are and they like being in that niche and, and having more knowledge than other people. Having new people come in all the time changes that. And that's what Ruby has basically always had since it, since Rails came about and even before that. Like everyone was a beginner in, in Ruby. And Matt's made it, made Ruby, the, the favorite saying that I always had and, and people used to use it and they don't use it so much anymore, but there was a there's an acronym Miniswan, which stands for Matt is nice and so we are nice and that was one of the big things that people would always throw around if someone was being a jackass in a chat room hmm. they would say that's not how we work here because that's not how Matt's works and that really defined the Ruby community and I've always loved it for that hmm. nice so actually that's that's a good point you know I, um, I think a lot of people have gotten together socially I mean you guys have actually taken the idea of social coding if anybody's ever been to a GitHub drink up, if you haven't and you're listening to this, I highly recommend even flying into one if need be. Um, but you guys constantly actually have these social interactions around your code. So how does that actually advise what GitHub sort of sees as its philosophy or its place in getting people to be nicer to interact? Uh, that's Going forward, that's what code is going to be all about. Writing code on your own is becoming less and less of a, of a thing because... What hasn't been written yet are becoming more and more increasingly complex, and so it's hard to do on your own. And so getting people to work well together in the coming years and decades is going to be where everything is about. It's not going to be a a solo hacker in his room writing make or something, right? It's just not going to happen that much anymore because those things are already written and they already work really well. 
and it's going to be more and more about collaboration. Actually, you know, if, if I remember correctly, I think last night there was a GitHub drink up. Indeed there was. And Josh Susser said that you and the other founders of GitHub actually met at an ICANN has Ruby, like an ICHR meeting. So you guys actually met from a social Ruby gathering. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I mean, I knew Chris and PJ through um, through the Ruby community and through the, the Ruby meetups, and then ICANN has Ruby was a kind of a special elitist gathering. Oh, I remember. If you if <laughs> if you, this is your first time at ICHR, you must show code. Yeah, but I mean, it was. I mean, when I say elitist, I mean really the VCs weren't invited. Was the main thing, right? It's not like it was hard to to go to one. It was just that we wanted to keep it a little bit more private because the VCs had sort of encroached upon the San Francisco Ruby meetups and they were no longer tolerable to attend. Hmm. So we were kind of doing a grassroots new one that we could control a little bit better and that was much more based around code specifically than it was about VC pitches. Because it's really hard to uninvite a VC once he's there. You know? And it's like, VCs are great. I love VCs and all, but they, they, they shouldn't be going to those kinds of meetings. That's not what they're about. Hmm. Interesting. And any, but, but yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how we met. We met through social interactions, not through code specifically. I mean, through code incidentally, but yeah. Give me a little refresher on the... You want a little, little more whiskey, man? On the whiskey here, please. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's say, by the time we get to this bottle, we'll get to the bottom of the truth. <laughs> But I encourage, I encourage in, in my talks and things, I encourage people to go to meetups and if there isn't one, to create one because that's where you're going to meet the people that you're compatible with intellectually and those are the people that you can code with really well. Hmm. Because it's hard to know just meeting them online what, what they're like and if you're going to mesh really well. And I think meeting someone in person and having those outside of the code interactions is, is really worthwhile for writing the code because eventually you're going to want to get together in person and if you don't mesh it all in the in the real world then that's an unfortunate thing and especially if you're looking to start a business hmm. and and meetups are a great place to do that to find people who have similar ideas to yours that's what you're really looking for is people that are that have similar visions of the future well you know okay so it's interesting right uh if I, maybe infamous is, is possibly not the right word, but you certainly have a little bit of notoriety for writing a blog post. I think you recall <laughs> um, why I turned down a $300,000 payout from PowerSet. So you just mentioned the idea of finding co-founders, and I think that a lot of people, especially in the community right now, are they see themselves as where you, Chris, PJ, and Scott were, say, a couple of years ago. Right. So... Given what you've learned over the past intervening years, you know, where would you tell them to start? What would you advise them to do? What, what would you advise them not to do? What's, what's the sort of the gem that you've learned? Uh, there's, there's a few simple things that I identified in, in thinking about how we were successful early on. And this is kind of specific to a bootstrap. And I think bootstrapping is really great for a lot of reasons, mainly because you don't have to spend a lot of time raising money to do it. You can just start right away. And as long as you have that in mind, then you can accomplish really good things, but you have to pick the right sorts of things to bootstrap. And so if you are in that position and you're looking to bootstrap something, then what I suggest is, is find an idea that has the elements of virality and community. Those things specifically meaning virality being the ability for something to propagate itself without a lot of effort on your part. So, for example, in the case of GitHub, GitHub is viral in that if you put your open source project on GitHub and you send the link out to all the news 
feeds and whatever and, and put it on your blog and, your t and you tweet it and stuff, then you're driving people to GitHub to look at your code. And now when those people get there and they look at your code, they also are discovering GitHub the service. So in helping you do what you do better, you are pointing people at our company. Mm -hmm. And in that way, it's viral. It's viral because people want you to go to our site because it makes them more awesome by them seeing your code. So a viral component is essential because you don't have a lot of time when you're bootstrapping or a lot of money to do advertising and to be talking to people constantly. You want your users to do that for you. So that's virality. And then community is once you have those people, how do you keep them sticking around? Because it's easy to be viral and short-lived. You're a meme. Exactly, right? So YouTube has, has a lot of virality, but not a lot of community. And while they're still immensely popular, it's, I think, because people like funny videos, not because it's like an amazing service otherwise. Yeah, but then actually, you know, you've got a point because ironically, though, sites like Funny or Die, that's kind of how they get their takeoffs because they actually try and go with both virality and community, right? Right. College yeah, they're, they're trying to build communities of people that, that have commonalities and talk to each other. So really, that, and that's where the collaboration part of GitHub comes in. That's the community. It's getting people to know each other and work together and follow each other and be interested in what those other people are doing so that they'll come back and see what those people are doing tomorrow. Hmm. That's community. So virality is getting the people there and community is keeping them there. And with those two things, you can build a huge user base with a very small amount of effort. So I would say think about those things if you're thinking about building a company or if you're in a bootstrapping situation or thinking about doing it. Think about those things because if you're selling, like if you're selling a internal management solution to businesses, you have to be on the street knocking on the, the proverbial company door every day forever. There is no virality in that. There is no community in that. It's not going to sell itself. And once the people have it, they're not going to talk to other people and come back to look, right? It, it, it's just a completely different business. Right. And the beauty of the internet is that if you think about things in the right way and think about how you can build in those elements of virality and community, and you can do it in a lot, in a lot of situations, you just have to understand that they need to be there. Once you start looking for ways to include virality and community in an idea, a lot of ideas are amenable to them. You just have to add them in. Hmm. No kidding. So, okay, then what was the largest mistake that you actually made when, after you bootstrapped? Like, what was the big thing, like, looking back now where you're like, you've got that moment, you smack yourself in the forehead, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. I think... Probably the, the biggest thing is some of the financial stuff regarding how, how stocks were, are awarded to new, to new employees and whatnot. Not coming from a really heavy business background and not having done a startup previously, you don't really understand how, those, how options work versus actual stock grants and stuff like that. And if you don't, go, if you don't get those things right in the first place, then it takes a lot of legal manipulation to, to get them correct again. <laughs> legal manipulation. Okay, that sounds like something where like, we're going to edit that out of the podcast. Well, no, it's not, it's not like that. It's not like we're doing anything illegal. It's just that you then have to go back and, and on paper fix those, you know, we're not screwing anyone over and, and we're not getting screwed over. It's just that 
if we had done things a little bit differently to begin with, as far as how things were how you structured it, were structured, then it would have been easier. Like everyone still ends up at this at the end of the day with with what they should have had. It just cost more money to get there. Hmm. <laughs> so I'd say look at the business things and especially know how know how stocks and and stuff how how options and stocks and things work. So that's interesting. Okay, so there, I know from time to time, like on Hacker News, you see these things in search of the technical co-founder, and it seems there's always a tech guy looking for a business guy and a business guy looking for a tech guy, but they never seem to find each other. They don't. It's like you know the yeah the running blog post, right? The technical co-founder doesn't exist, and then there's the counterpoint: the the business co-founder <laughs> doesn't exist. So, given that this is the case, and given that you're sitting there saying it's like, hey, I wish I had had more business acumen about how we set things up. Why do you think there seems to be this cross connector? This this why why are these two ships passing in the night? I suppose. Uh, I think I think it's because technical people and business people are generally very different in how they perceive the world and each other. So the common thing is that the business guy thinks that his idea is amazing and all he needs is some code jock to <laughs> code jock. Why is code jock? Is that a thing? Uh, like some code jock. I wish there was such a thing back in high school, right? A yeah, code jock. Code jock. You, could, um, you could letter in code. <laughs> Technically, if you lettered in code, what would you get a C? <laughs> I suppose so. But the, the business person perceives what the code person does as like simplistic. And the code person sees what the business person does as simplistic. And so neither of them see, thinks the other one. But, but simplistic <laughs> works. Well, it's just you don't understand what goes into it and the knowledge that you have to have to be an expert at that situation. You know, the business guy is just like, well, aren't you just opening up front page and typing in PHP? They don't even know what those things are, right? But to them, it's so simple. And to the coder, the business stuff is just like, don't you just file a bunch of paperwork? Right. But it's not really, it's not really like that. And until, until those two types of people understand and appreciate the complexities of each other, then they'll always complain that that there's never a good fit for who they're looking for. Hmm. I guess is the way that I see it. Yeah, well, that's what I asked. It's actually, we're we're curious. So, um, so what's next for GitHub? I mean, you guys actually have have done a great job of engaging with multiple communities. You've probably, I think, you guys passed SourceForge. Uh, like a while back, right? Uh, in in some metrics, we passed them on a number of repositories like a year ago, at right. least. And so, so you guys are actually you're growing, you're doing really well. Um, so, what's next? What are the things? What are the problems that you want to tackle? What are the things that you think are going to confront social coding as a as a concept that you're going to have to deal with? Uh, in addition to just refining the website itself and the way that people work, making pull requests better and more powerful making issues better and more powerful, making search better. And, you know, there's all these different things. But for me, what I've been thinking about is we focus a lot on get users and get the technology and code writing specifically. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, are we missing out on a huge chunk of people that could use the site even if they don't do some of those things. So an example, when I was at startup school giving a talk there, one of the founders of Airbnb gave a great talk about kind of his journey from creating the concept to where they are now, which is very successful. And they started out being very, very 
niche in that it was all about literally bed, like uh, air mattresses and breakfast in the morning. That was their thing. That, that was their idea. And after a little while, they realized that they were pigeonholing themselves too much. And what people really wanted was the ability to list properties of any type on their own without having to go through a listing agency. And so instead of becoming literally air mattresses and breakfast in the morning, it was, hey, I have this rental property that I'm not using right now and I could make money off of it by listing it on here. Or I do have an extra room in my house, but it's a total room or maybe it's even a separate part of like a guest part of the house, whatever. And it has a real bed. And no, I'm not going to serve you breakfast in the morning. That's stupid. Cook your own damn breakfast. And once they realized that that the the market was bigger than they had originally pigeonholed themselves into, they ex- they exploded in, in growth and popularity. And I'm wondering if maybe we are the same somehow in that maybe we are restricting ourselves too much artificially by focusing on people writing code and sharing code. Like, are there other things that technical people would like to do that we could facilitate? And that's kind of purposely vague because I don't know the answer myself. That's a nothing but questions, nothing but questions. Um, (laughs) So I think um, one of the things I heard being bandied about is you guys actually have a conference coming up. Is this... Is this, are these rumors true? Could this actually be? The rumor is indeed true. Yes. We are organizing a conference. And it is going to be the, the weekend of April 8th. And it's going to be a two-day conference. It's going to be called CodeConf. It's going to be all about code. We have a great set of speakers that have agreed to come there. And I would like to rattle off a few of their names. Um, we have Wrench is his is his handle, but he's the one that wrote Click to Flash. Which Wait, I'm sorry, did you just say Wrench was his handle? Yeah, Wrench is his handle. Without irony, no pun intended, <laughs> not even like a... Uh. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Randall. I think, I, I, think, I think on a different plane than you, so to me it was, it was obvious. Oh, yes, of course. You think on a different plane? Inclined plane, is that it? <laughs> Very inclined. Uh, but Ranch wrote Click the Flash. Click the Flash was one of the, the first really super popular projects that was um, a native OSX software. Mm-hmm. Before that, there wasn't a lot of Cocoa on the site at all. And he moved that over from Google Code, and people just started watching and forking it like crazy, adding features. They made it way better. That was a crystallizing moment for me in, in really seeing that what we were doing as far as the collaboration stuff like to really see it viscerally happen and at a, mm-hmm. at, at a rate that you could perceive. Like you'd go there and the next day you'd go there and there would be 10 new forks with 10 new features that Wrench had, that had pulled in and now he had a new version out. And it was all because he made it easy for people to contribute by moving his code to GitHub. Yeah. So that's why we invited him and he's awesome. Um, we have uh, Dr. Nick, who I believe you know. Yeah, so that's a never met the man. <laughs> An angry Australian, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Indeed. Angry about what, though? I don't know. The fact that he's truly Tasmanian? <laughs> Is he really? Yeah, actually, th- he's from Tasmania. Oh, awesome. Because uh, he got me some whiskey from, like, Tasmanian whiskey. 
I did not know they made whiskey there. Trust me, until he brought it to me, neither did I. Oh, wait, I think we had this discussion, actually, about importing Tasmanian liquor. That's indeed we did, <laughs> yes. As I say, not to say that my memory is affected by my drinking at all. <laughs> um, Andy, Andy Lester, the author of Ack, only the greatest code-searching tool of all time. So, and keep rattling off the names. Uh, like a long but illustrious list. Uh, Mojadna. Is, is his handle. Jesus. Well, you know, Osama bin Laden could be appearing. You know, I don't, half the people I know, I don't know the real names. They'll come up to me at drink ups and be like, hey, I'm John Smith. Something. John Jacob Jingleheimer? Yeah. I know. I, it, and <laughs> the funny part is, at one point in time, I used to think that was my name too. But as it turns out, no. No, it isn't. It's just a dream. So We all have dreams. Uh, but he's going to talk about geolocation. Uh, uh, Jacob Kaplan-Moss, one of the, the main people in Django. Uh, Jeremy Ashkenas, Coffee Script. Oh, yeah. Which is amazing. Uh, Valerie Aurora is going to talk about the Linux kernel. Highly involved there. Coda Hale, one of my favorite people. Going to talk about something. Security, I hope. It, I don't know. As long it, as he, be good. As long as he is himself. That's all that I care about. Ariel Waldman, who is an astronomer slash technologist working on things like putting satellites into space, like small satellites. Um, okay. Doing really cool stuff with, with space and, and whatnot. So I look forward to seeing what she has to say. Um, Amana Wixted, who works at Zynga. They talk about iPhone code. Nice. Nicole Sullivan, who does OOCSS, object-oriented CSS, which is an awesome CSS framework that a lot of people use. Ryan Dahl, Node.js. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of Node.js recently. You have? Yeah. Well, a lot of it's internal. We have an internal thing called Hubot, which sits in our campfire room and does things for us. I heard. Yeah. But it, apparently it doesn't talk to an Arduino yet. It doesn't, but it will. Will it? it give it. I have I have it ordered. I mean, the Arduino. As I say, did you get the uh, Prague book? Uh, I haven't bought the book yet. No. There's, there's an Arduino book that just came out for Prague. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't read it, but, you know, Prague... Hermatic, it's pretty, it's got to be good. So, okay, cool. So, right, Dahl's there. Uh, yep, Dahl and Gina uh, Trapani from Lifehacker. Oh, yeah. And Mike Krieger from Instagram. One of my new most favoritist things. Yeah, actually, I know. It keeps going <laughs> Trust me. It's like I see, I see your life in like Polaroid style, very flashy and, and strangely attractive pictures. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Maybe too much. Um, but that's the lineup right now, uh, subject to change, obviously. But we hope all of those people can make it. Cool. Um, so what size is the conference going to be? Are you going for, like, small and intimate, huge and gigantic? Uh, we want to target we've – been, we've been, like, the idea is to target more of kind of the business crew so that we can get companies who are hopefully going to foot the bill for people to come, mm-hmm. which, which makes it so that a wider kind of audience of people can make it there. And with that in light, then we're gonna we're gonna target. I think the number that I've heard is three hundred, so not tiny, but not huge. Yeah, that'll sell in an hour. <laughs> so you have a venue in mind? Uh, yes, it's going to be at the Hyatt, right near the Ferry Building. Got it. That will be the hotel where the conference is, and where we'll have discounted rates. Like we really want to get people together in the same space. Have you? called Maker's Mark and asked them whether or not they actually will fly in enough whiskey for PJ. <laughs> no, but that's a good idea. Actually, you know what? You should get them to sponsor the conference. Maybe sponsored by Maker's. 
<laughs> Just saying. Um, not a terrible idea. Not a so, terrible idea. So yeah. So um, actually, you know what? There, there is one other question. I, I'm curious as to how you deal with it. Um, a lot of people, you know, there are those who actually, you know, forgive the pun, get it, and they use Git. But then a lot of people, like the first time they come to Git, especially if they were on CVS or Subversion or something else, or God forbid, Perforce, Visual Source, something else like that, uh-huh. they seem to have like a cognitive block and they just say like Git's too difficult to use. So where are you guys seeing in terms of people, like, you know, because you have so many new people coming into the community, what do you guys see in terms of people who are adopting Git, first-time users? Do you still get that a lot? Do you do you have people complaining about ease of use or, or burden? It happens, it happens less, I think, because there are a lot of pretty good resources now online and people are, people realize that, you know, they see Git everywhere and they're like, well, why am I not using this yet? I guess I better go check it out. And then they search for Git and they end up at, at git-scm.org, which is a site that Scotch Cone put together and is now the main Git site. And from there, you can, you can find his book, which he's written, and download it for free. You can download the PDF for free of Pro Git by Scott. And I think that alone, like that book, him writing and releasing that book with with the technical editor being Sean Pierce, probably almost inarguably the number two person in the Git core project itself, um, is is the technical maintainer. And so everything's been vetted by someone who, who knows everything. And that book alone and being available for free, and Scott, Scott lobbied really hard to make it available for free because he wanted it to get to a broader audience and he knew it was important for that to happen. So it's Creative Commons license. And that, that event alone, I think, changed the perceptions of a lot of people in that, hey, here's a book that's written in a way that, that books should be written, that's approachable, and I can go through it, and I can actually understand this stuff instead of trying to wade through the, the man pages or the documents that come with Git, which are written by the Git developers, which I love, but are not, you know, their specialty is not writing help documentation. And so being approachable in a book format, I think, is huge. And so it's just education is a lot better now and people have that that problem less. And as GitHub gets better, then people have even less complaints because they can understand how things work, like pull requests. And we give them hints. We say, here's a pull request, and if you want to merge this, here are the commands to run. And so reducing that friction between getting something and acting upon it, we try to do as much as possible. And in doing that, reduce the stress that people have using Git because they don't have to worry about memorizing 17 options to some git command. Got it. But we are we are constantly working on making that better and education is going to be another focus of this year in really getting together some truly excellent resources and putting together all of the resources that we have right now mm-hmm. that are kind of spread all over the place. Like Scott has like five different websites that have videos and tutorials and stuff because Scott likes to produce stuff um, Scott is not as good at curating and, and putting stuff all together. He's an idea man and an execution man, um, but like getting them coherently together is something that we want to move towards. So is what you're telling me is that you're having problems merging Scott's? <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, no, I mean, Scott is just a, a fountain of, of awesomeness, and we're just trying to build a, a system of pipes Capable of routing. Okay, this strange Unix scenario <laughs> fails right here, right? Because otherwise, yeah. you know what I'm getting at. Yes. Anyway. 
So, um, yeah, so what else? What else do you, you, like, I mean, we've got, you've got, like, a great audience. We've got this platform here. People are interested in what you're doing. So what else do you want people to know? What didn't I, what should have I have asked you, but I didn't? I failed too miserably because I'm focused on that bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Just staring at it. Uh, I, we covered a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that I like to impart on people, some of the business stuff, some of the company stuff. Um, GitHub FI, we're going to be doing a big push on. FI mm-hmm. is the firewall install, the locally installable version. Yeah, actually, you know what? That actually brings up a very good question, which is, what do you guys see as the adoption rate of Git inside of enterprises? Because FI was designed to be used by people who just can't host it, uh, their assets outside of their own mm-hmm. environment. So are you guys seeing a, a lot of adoption, a little of adoption? I mean, are the Perforce guys running scared yet? Uh, I... I I can't. I, I don't know that they're running scared. Although I think the landscape is starting to change a little bit in that we are seeing a lot of interest in FI from larger companies. Uh, I mean, we have AT and T Interactive is using FI. Zappos is using FI. A lot of companies are starting to come to us and say, "Hey, we've heard about this. A lot of our developers think that it would be great to have internally." And some of them that, that you wouldn't expect, and some of them that I can't even say their names because they're so enterprisey that you know they don't even let you do that. So it, it, I don't. I mean, there's a lot of enterprises, and we've only seen yeah, a few of them. But in the in that we've seen any of them, I think is really promising, and we're going to see more and more. It's inevitable. Hmm. There we have it. Git is inevitable. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks so much for spending the time. And uh, I will be happy to come by any time and bribe you with another bottle of whiskey so we can chat. Oh, uh, I think that's a pretty good arrangement. It works for me. Thanks for tuning into the uh, Cloud Out Loud podcast. As always, send any questions to us at Engine Yard or the, uh, the crew over at GitHub. You know how to find us if you're actually listening to this. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This week's job posting is from Carbon5. If you're interested in exploring new technologies and techniques, such as NoSQL and TDD, then head on over to jobs.engineer.com to apply for the position. Next week, we interview Joe O'Brien from Edgecase. We talked to him about his business philosophy, involvement in JRuby, and one of my favorite open source projects to help people learn Ruby, Ruby Cohen's.